This morning I will be speaking and teaching out of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, I, I had to learn how to spell it in English because Ezekiel automatically has a Q-U-I in it in Spanish, but it's a K for you guys, so it's fine. Uh, I also saw yesterday a documentary on, on what was this singer, uh, Humberdick? Engelbert Humberdick. And, and, and the dude <laughs> was very interesting. He, he um, would change the lyrics of the music according to how he wanted them to be played, and that was okay. But he got in a lot of trouble for that sometimes. Now, I have been speaking in the last few weeks about the presence of God, God being present with us, God being not only present with the world, but God being also being proximate in our lives, very close to our lives. The passage of Scripture that I'm going to be reading in the book of Ezekiel is in chapter 36. If you want to go to Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, the book of Ezekiel is a book that is written for the people of Israel who are actually in exile. They are in exile as Ezekiel is writing this book. As Ezekiel is doing his prophecies, the community of Israel and the Hebrews are in exile in Babylon. Along with them, there's two other individuals that are contemporaries, and we know their name, and they know each other along with Ezekiel, who was a prophet during the exilic period in Babylon, we also have Jeremiah. Jeremiah knew about Ezekiel. Ezekiel knew about Jeremiah. And along with Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they also had a, a, a third friend, like the three amigos here. They had Daniel. So Daniel and uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel knew each other. And the book of Ezekiel makes references to both of these prophets, but none of the other two, meaning Jeremiah or Daniel, makes references to Ezekiel. Uh, very interesting situation. But the prophet Ezekiel has a pattern in his prophecies. Typically, the Lord will give him a prophecy, and then the Lord will follow with a vision to illustrate the prophecy. Now, I am going to be speaking this morning of a portion of that prophecy, but you will recognize what immediately follows after the prophecy as the vision of the valley of the dry bones. Exactly. So this prophecy that I'm going to read, which is the ending of it, uh, actually follows into the vision of the valley of of the dry bones. And if you remember, in the valley of the dry bones, the Spirit of God moves a wind, and the people of Israel at that time who were in exile, today perhaps the church, today perhaps your life who's in shambles, who is destroyed, the Spirit of God blows over it, and everything comes together, and there is a new person formed out of what was death and destruction. But Ezekiel 36, the verses 25 and 27 read as follows. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth, your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you 
so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. In the first week of the month, we were talking about uh, the idea that God was there and God was not silent. And the challenge that we received that Sunday was, are we listening to God speaking to each one of us? The second Sunday that we talked about this series in the presence of God, we spoke about that God, that we explored the concept that God is ahead of us, of us. God is ahead of us. God is in front of us. God knows our future. God knows what we need. So therefore, God is able to sustain and uphold us in no matter what situation we're in. The question was, are we following God if he is ahead of us. Last week, I discussed the idea and the notion that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And that is a statement directly from Paul. The question is that if God is for us, are we with him? And that's the question. Today, I wish to finish this brief series and talk about the idea that uh, a, a very notion that is very strange and very rare to human beings, and it's the idea of God in us. You see, Christianity can claim this as one of its only and unique attributes. If you know any Buddhist, a Buddhist will be able to tell you that they are inspired that they learn from Buddha, that they may be feel guided by, by the lessons of Buddha, but they cannot tell you that Buddha is in them. It's not part of their cosmology. A Muslim will also tell you that God, Allah, and Muhammad may inspire them, may give them directions, may give them regulations, may even tell, you know, some inspirations, as I mentioned earlier, but it's not in their cosmology either, that God is in them. The entire idea that God dwells, abides, and is in us is exclusive and uniquely to Christianity. It doesn't appear in any other religion. In all other world religions, and I'm not trashing them down, but basically you have to convince your God to listen to you. Remember last week as the prophets of Baal were hollering and jumping and slicing and crying out to Baal, and Baal never responded, but the God of Elijah, the God of Elisha, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel responded above and beyond what was expected in terms of response. So the idea that God is in us is a very unique and a very mysterious notion. It's so mysterious that some of my colleagues in seminary, you will become familiarized with this as I remember us, in seminary, that they, yes, yes, God lives in us in our intellect. So for them, the idea that God lives in us is a mere intellectual ascension or an intellectual notion that God is with us because we read the stories, because we keep the traditions, and because we are aware of God's message in our lives. I find that somewhat disingenuous because the Scriptures don't teach that in any way, shape, or form. Actually, the text that we just read, listen to what it says. The verse 
the first verse 25, it's even a symbol. It's even a remembrance of what we're going to experience later in the New Testament under the New Covenant, what baptism is. The first uh, word says, I will sprinkle water on you and you will be clean. What does that remind you of? Baptism. The fact that God claimed us as children when we were able, when we were not even able to respond to God God, in our insufficiency, in our inability, God still claims us in the covenant and calls us God's child. In verse 26, this is the operation verse, and I call it operation because there is some good engineering taking place in here. Notice that the idea. God will uh, promises to take out what? I will give you a what? A new heart. Does he say that he's going to fix your heart? God doesn't say he's going to fix your heart. Does he say that he's going to mend your heart? God doesn't say he's going to mend your heart. Does God say here that he's going to remodel, renew kind of, you know, your heart? No. It says that he is going to give you a brand new heart. That is a heart that you and I don't have until this moment because it is a brand new new heart. And then God goes even further up and saying, and I will take, uh, and, and I will put a new spirit in you. He's going to take out, he's going to give us a new heart, and he's going to put in a spirit. Then he continues in verse 26 and saying, and I will take your stony Stubborn heart. Back to the first formula. I will give you a new heart. Why? Because you have a stony, stubborn heart. What other adjectives could we probably add to that concept of stony and stubborn? We could probably add selfish. We could probably add self-centered. We could probably add you know, egotistical. We could probably add all the negative adjectives that goes along with the heart. Heard of a story of a man who was going to go to surgery because he had an issue with the valves and the timing of the, of the electricity inside the heart. Uh, and, and Max just got his new lease in life, so we thank God for that. He has a brand new pacer. So he's going to ring everywhere he goes through, through metal detectors, he told me. But if he walks through, he won't be ringing if he stops and vacillates, then they will catch him. But if he goes through, he won't ring. But it's good that he has that ability, that science has that ability to take his broken heart physical and give it a new shot. Well, this guy is going to go to an operation, and the doctor says, I cannot fix your heart electronically. I'm going to have to go in and burn it inside. What do you mean you're going to burn my heart inside? I'm going to burn the area in your heart that's causing this problem, that's causing this other situation in your heart. As he's been wheeled into surgery, he likes to get giddish like all of us, you know, when we get nervous, we like to throw a joke back and forth. And he tells the surgeon, uh, doctor, make sure if you're going to go and burn in my heart, I would like for you to burn my selfishness. I would like for you to burn my hate. I would like for you to burn my unforgiveness. I would like for you to burn my dissatisfaction with life. And the doctor, thinking that his medication was already wearing off on him, he says, I'm sorry, I don't have license for that one. But he is going to take our stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, 
responsive heart. The old King James uses the terminology, a, a, a heart of rock, of stone, and it's going to be turned into a heart of flesh that's responsive to God's Spirit. But then here it comes in verse 27. The one thing that's specifically unique to our experience as God not only has become presence in our world, but has become close to you and I. So close, he says, that and I will put my spirit in you. What? Does that mean that I am possessed? Yeah, I agree. Does that mean that I am occupied? Not by Wall Street. But God has occupied you and has occupied me. You see, in this whole idea that the heart is going to be played, that the spirit is going to be placed in our heart, Jesus even talked about it. Jesus even talked about it. If you look with me in the, in the book of John, actually it's, it's also mentioned not only in Ezekiel, if we're going to go talk about Bib, uh, the, the Bible, what the Bible says about it, it's also in Joel. In Joel chapter 2, verse 29, and I will pour my spirit over every person. And also in Jeremiah verse, uh, chapter 31, it says, I will place my word deep within you so that you know what to do. In the theological economy, you know what that is? The economy of theology? In the, uh, that is the distribution of God through, through the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come and dwell in the prophet for a little while and would leave. You find that constantly in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God never remained. It always came, did its job with a vessel, the prophet or the priest, and left again. You see, part of the covenant of the New Testament or the New Covenant in the new relationship with God is that this spirit is not going to come and go at will, but it will come and reside, dwell, remain, be with, make abode, be a house, because we are then the temple of the Holy Spirit. Look how Jesus calls it. In, um, uh, in, in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus in Jesus and made Jesus do this amazing miracle works, amazing words of wisdom. That means that the Spirit of God was incarnate, was living, was part of who Jesus is. In John 14, that amazing verse, chapter, that talks about uh, that, that I, where I go, you, you will also go, because I'm going to go and build mansions for you all in the southern draw. I'm going to build mansions for you all. Uh, it says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, because Jesus is talking about that he's going to be leaving. And if Jesus leaves, he's going to send somebody that will be the advocate who will never leave you. He is the Spirit who leads into all truth, the world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. And listen to this part. But you know him because he lives with you. And later, he will be in 
you. Not now. Later, in the famous Pentecost, God in us. That is amazing. God living in us, that is just amazing. How can that be? Now, if you think about it, and you dwell on the thinking that God is in every one of you, that God is in me, that is grace. That is grace. You see, because the whole purpose of God living in you is not so that you would go to heaven. The whole idea of God living in you, God dwelling in you, God abiding in you, God making his mansion in you, God making his temple in you, is not so that you will go to heaven. It's so that heaven will be built in you. That's what it is. It's not so that you will be in the kingdom. It's so that the kingdom will be in your heart. And if your kingdom, and if God's kingdom is in your heart, and God's kingdom begins to grow in your heart, guess what happens to you? You begin to decrease. You begin to die. This morning, I had the audacity to practice this reality. And when I looked at myself in the mirror, I, I had two choices. I haven't done this part up here. I'll be doing that this coming week. But I, so it was kind of all over the place. I'm talking about my hair. Uh, but I had to overlook that and overlook my eyes as I went up in the morning and say, oh, so that's where you are, Holy Spirit. Think about it. So when you look at yourself in the mirror the next time, just say, oh, so that's where you are, Lord. In you. In you. It's in you. You see, God decides to make his abiding, his dwelling in you. And, and actually, uh, it's not a very rare notion in the Bible. The Old Testament talks about it. John, along the gospel and the epistles, mentioned the idea that God lives in you, that God dwells in you, that God is in you 26 times. And for Paul, Paul mentions in his epistles over 216 times the notion that God is in us. So it's not a far-fledged idea. If you haven't heard it before, it's because perhaps your old pastors didn't believe in it, didn't understand it, or didn't want to go touch it. But it is a very important part of the gospel because it is the idea of God becoming incarnate, not only in Jesus Christ, but as Jesus ascended into heaven, so as the Father has sent me, I have sent you as disciples. So then the Spirit comes and dwells in us for what? What's the purpose of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us? For us to get rich? For us to just lay back and get fat and lazy? I wish. No. You see, if God is in us, I want to ask you these three questions. Are we listening, God, who is in us? If God is in us, are we following the God that is in us? And if God is in us, are we with him? You see, God is in us to remind us that we belong to God. God is in us to tell us that we have God's wisdom for every part of our lives. God is in us to empower us to share the good news with anybody. God is in 
in us so that we can, so that God himself can lead us to all truth. God is in us so that God can encourage our souls to bring us the best of us to the Lord. God is in us to give us hope. God is in us to grow, to help us grow in faith. God is in us to bestow us love, mercy, and grace. But God is also in us to remind us that there is a world out there with pain, that there is a world out there with need, that there is a world out there that cries out, where are you, God? God is in us to also remind us of what breaks God's heart. And it should also break our heart because it is a new heart responsive to God's own spirit that is within us. God is in us to teach to explain Scripture. God is in us to quicken us when we slumber. God is in us to empower us to obey the call and to help us trust even more God and to keep on walking in God. God is in us in spite of my ugliness. God is in us in spite of our need of God. And God is in us to keep us humble. God is in us to keep us servants. God is in us to make us die so that the image of Jesus will grow in us and we become more like Jesus and less like us. That is why the Spirit of God is in you. That is why the Spirit of God resides, dwells, lives, and He will never leave you or forsake you. John also tells us, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Have you been listening to the Spirit's leading in your lives? Have you been listening to the Spirit's talking in your life as you do things and later on God may remind you, you messed up over there. That's okay. Are you following where the Spirit is leading you? Are you going your own direction, having your own petty fight because you're dissatisfied with what's happened? And may I ask you, since God, God's self, lives within you, are you willing to surrender? You see, God is not only present in the world through common grace. God is present in your life and my life with such proximity that he has decided to live in us. How many of you knew that God lives in you? Let me see his hands. How many of you learned today that God lives in you? Amen. How many of you want to make sure that God stays within you and never leaves you again? Well, I'm going to ask you to then close your eyes and pray with me in your heart. You don't have to repeat with me. Just close your eyes and say very deeply and very seriously in your heart, Oh, Lord, I have come to you, and I wish to thank you. I want a change in my spiritual life. I wish to live my life with Jesus and make him the leader of my life from now on. Quicken your spirit in me and teach me to listen, teach me to follow, and teach me to be with him. Amen.